0: So, the title of our uh, Bible study this morning is God's Lamp. We've already prayed, so let's get right into it. Before we get um, into the study itself, I need to review something with everybody because this will be critical to our study this morning, and we're going to review the sanctuary, okay? We're going to go through this very briefly. Now, this will be review for most of us here. Uh, this is a diagram of the sanctuary. And as a, as a person would enter, uh, coming from the east, into the sanctuary... The first article that they would bump into would be the altar of burnt offering or the altar of sacrifice. That altar uh, is where they would obviously kill the, the, the animal um, that was uh, to be offered up for sins. And so it was representative of the cross, among other things. So the altar of uh, burnt offerings here is representative of the cross because Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he was uh, slain at the cross. As a person would proceed further into the sanctuary, they would bump into the bronze basin or the laver. And among other things, that is a symbol where of um, of baptism or um, dying to one's old self and a resurrection to new life. Okay, so the labor is a symbol not only of baptism by immersion, but it's also a symbol of resurrection and death to old self. Okay, now what's interesting about this is that you go into the sanctuary as you go into the sanctuary here. The first thing that you see is you see God dying for you. And as a result, you then choose to die for God. Does that make sense? So you see God dying for you on the cross, and as a result of that, you die to yourself. You give your will to God and your life to Him, and you die in the waters of baptism. Now, this, this first two-stage two process is called conversion. This is where you first meet the Lord, and you become on fire for Him, and, and you become loyal to Him. The question then is, how does a person maintain that initial conversion experience? Well, the sanctuary teaches us that because as you go further into the sanctuary, you have the three disciplines, as uh, I think, uh, who was it, Doug Batcher was saying the other day, I like that word, the three disciplines of Christianity. To maintain that conversion experience, you have the table of showbread, which symbolizes the word of God, because man shall not live by by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then you also have the altar of incense, and that symbolizes prayer, uh, our prayers ascending to heaven. It also symbolizes Christ's uh, mediation for us uh, and and uh, his covering of us with his his uh, righteousness uh, in heaven. And, and then you have the candlesticks, and that symbolizes well. Jesus says, "You are the light of the world." Right. So God's church is a light in a darkened world. So it it symbolizes Christian witness, right? Now, there's, there's multiple meanings uh, to, there's multiple symbolic applications to each one of these. I'll give you one example. Although the table of showbread symbolizes the word of God, it also symbolizes God's throne. Because the table of showbread was one of the, um, I believe, two um, articles that had a golden uh, crown mold around it. And um, it had two equally high stacks of bread on it. And Jesus said that he was the bread that came down from heaven. And he also said that he went to ascend to his father and sit on his throne with him in Revelation 3. So we have this picture here of God, the Father, and Jesus of equal stature sitting on the throne together, and they're in uh, the holy place in heaven in the sanctuary. They're sitting on the throne. Now, um, the other article that had the, the throne, the crown molding around it was the Ark of the Covenant. So you say, well, does God have two, God have two thrones in heaven? No, he doesn't. It's just that God's throne is movable. Oftentimes when we see God's throne depicted in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel, uh, you see that there are wheels that are underneath of the throne, and there's a movement that's taking place. We also see that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where it says that the thrones were put in place and the judgment began. So the ancient days was seated. A throne was moved in there. So um, going back to the original idea here, you have symbolized the initial conversion experience. Then you have what sustains that conversion experience in the Christian life. You have the, um, the Bible, prayer, and witnessing. If we have the Bible in our life, if we have prayer in our life, and if we have witnessing in our life, those are the three ingredients that God has given us to continue having spiritual strength. So if you're feeling spiritually weak, it's likely because you're missing one of those three elements, or two of the three elements, or all three elements. And, um, you know, I'll just put a plug in there. One of the things that supplants our, our time with the Bible most often is these little devices in our pockets nowadays. So um, if you want to go on a phone fast and pick up your Bible instead, uh, that might help boost your spiritual life if you're feeling spiritually dead. Um, Then lastly, as we proceed forward into the holy place, past the holy place, we enter into the most holy place, and this is where we have the single article called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments inside and it had the mercy seat on top, which was made out of pure gold. The mercy seat also had, made out of hammered work, two covering cherubim that were on the top uh, that were looking down towards uh, the center, towards the law of God and the mercy seat below them. And um, enshrined, or in the center of those angels, which are not depicted here, was what's called the Shekinah glory. And that was a, you could say, like a scintillating ball of light <laughs> for lack of better terms. And that was representative of God's actual presence. And so um, you have uh, God p- depicted as between the cherubim and sitting on a mercy seat that is founded on justice. You know, the Bible says in Psalms, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So we have this picture of God's throne being founded on justice or the law. Uh, it's, it's actually speculated that the sapphire stone underneath, a stonework beneath God's throne, uh, that that, was that, that, um, that rock was the, the rock that God actually used to give Moses in, in the first set of Ten Commandments that were broken by him. Wouldn't that be interesting if the first set of Ten Commandments actually came from the very foundation of God's throne? because that's what, uh, in, in context, uh, people speculate that from Deuteronomy, where it talks about that first set, and it also talks about the, the work, the paved work beneath God's, uh, God's throne. But anyway, that's speculative. So, having just reviewed all that, we can see that the sanctuary has very personal application, but it also has uh, uh, larger implications, too. And so, um, it's just good for us to review that, because now as we get into our Bible study, we're really going to uh, dig a lot into the sanctuary. So, again... God's, or, or the title for today's sermon is God's lamp. God's lamp. So I'm going to show you a couple pictures here. Isn't that beautiful? This is, uh, these are some pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, I enjoy looking uh, at these, and just sometimes looking at them and imagining what would it be like to be there. You know, so many beautiful colors out in the universe that God's created, interesting, different, uh, um, you know, objects in space. That one kind of looks like a big eyeball. I think that was actually featured on the cover of National Geographic years ago. Different galaxies that are floating close to each other. Um, this is a, a big uh, gas, gaseous thing, for <laughs> whatever you call that. Somebody here probably knows. There you go, nebula maybe. Uh, this this is gigantic. This is humongous. Um, th- this gives you no idea, no concept of the scale of what we're looking at here, but it's just humongous. Um, you know. Beautiful colors out there. Pink. Have you ever thought, have you ever tried to think of a different color that you've never seen before? Well, even if you could think or imagine a different color that you've never seen before, how would you describe it to somebody? I suppose that'd be impossible almost, wouldn't it? I wonder if there's some different colors out there in the spectrum that we've never seen. Imagine living in a world that was in the center of all that. You'd have like maybe green skies. It'd be amazing. Green skies at night. Well, this is uh, the last picture I'm going to show you of space. This is a significant picture. Some of you might recognize it. This picture is significant because it's the furthest that humans have ever seen into space. NASA took uh, the darkest spot that they could find in the nighttime sky, and they aimed the Hubble Space Telescope at it, and they opened the exposure, I think for multiple days, actually, and, uh, to, let the, to let the light come in. And this is what came back to them. Now, if it was completely dark in here, and if we had a good high-resolution uh, you know, screen that we'd be looking at in front of us, you could see that all the black there would be literally littered with, with teeny tiny dots. And none of those are stars. Those are all galaxies, of course. So, you know, y- it, this is as far as we've ever seen. And when we look at the furthest point that we've ever seen, we still continue to see I- immensity and largeness and, and, and un- unlimited amounts of planets that, that you, you can't even count. It's just amazing. So, um, you know, scientists speculate that in the universe that we can actually see, so that I suppose that would include this picture, that there's, they estimate that there's 10 billion galaxies, and that each galaxy contains 100 billion stars. So if there's 10 billion galaxies, according to their speculation, and hundred billion galaxies, 100 billion stars in each galaxy, you multiply those two together, and you come to 100 billion trillion stars. 100 billion trillion stars in the known universe, that's an estimate. Um, That is approximately 10 times more stars that we can observe than grains of sand on all the beaches and deserts in the world. So if you take a cup of sand from the beach and you try and count all the grains of sand in it, multiply that times 10 and you're well, I don't know. You're not even getting beginning to close to understand how many how many suns and stars how many stars there are out there. Now, of course, this is just stars. We're not talking about planets, right? So um, that's a lot a lot of stars. Um, and some of these stars are immense. I mean, one that we know of, Canis Majoris, is this big, and that would be our sun right there. Um, so Canis Majoris can fit a lot of suns, and our <laughs> our sun can hold a million Earths in terms of size. So these are big balls of light, and there's a lot of them. My point in bringing all this up is that God really likes light. God likes light. He doesn't care for darkness so much. He likes light. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in light. It also says in Psalms that God is clothed in light. It says that God is light. It says also that God, the first thing that he spoke in Genesis, the very first thing is, let there be light. Right? The first recorded words of God in Scripture. Um, and uh, when all of this sin problem is done, we're going to live in a world that God dwells in. And there will be no need of sun or moon because God will dwell there and there is going to be intense light from that. In fact, Isaiah twenty-four twenty-three actually says that when God is living on this planet and he is emitting light from his throne and himself... It says that the moon will be confounded and the sun will be ashamed when the Lord of hosts reigns in Mount Zion in Jerusalem before his ancients gloriously. So imagine that. What happens if you look at the sun right now? You'll hurt your eyes, right? It's so brilliant. However, when God is dwelling on this earth, this earth is going to be so lightened and illuminated that the sun itself will be ashamed. Incredible. That's a lot of light. God likes light. So, question for us today if God likes light so much, what is its significance for us? Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. And we're going to look at the theme of light in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. <clears throat> light is a symbol in the Bible. It's not just a, a physical uh, thing in our reality. That produces vegetation, supports vegetation. 2 Corinthians 4.6 gives us an explanation of what light is a symbol of. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, speaking of creation, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, according to this verse, light is a symbol of understanding God. If you understand God and you understand his character, it means that you have great light. If you don't understand God and his character, it means that you are plunged into darkness. This is a theme that we find all throughout the Bible. And this theme is actually picked up in Genesis when the, Adam and Eve sinned. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. There's a battle between light and darkness, between knowing God and not knowing him, that began at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, I'm sorry, yes, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's look at that together. For context, Eve had just finished sinning, and Adam as well. And God is coming into the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the what of the day? The cool. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees in the garden. So, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible describes the evening. The cool. The cool of the day. The sun was setting. It was beginning to get cool because the sun had gone, the sun was going down. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged our world into, into darkness. Now, <clears throat> how is it that we get nighttime anyway? <clears throat> what does the world have to do to get night? It has to turn its back on the source of light, right? So let's pretend that this pulpit is the sun and I'm the earth, you know, and I'm rotating. Well, how do I get nighttime? On my chest. Let's say America's right here. Well, I have to turn away from the source of light, right? So when, we turn, when Adam and Eve turned their, when the world, through Adam and Eve, turned their, their backs on the source of light, which is God, because God is light, then they plunged us all into darkness. Now, praise God, he didn't leave us in darkness, did he? God set the moon in the sky, you know? And when you look at the moon, what can you know? You can know that the light still exists, right? In fact, when you look at the moon, what happens if you look at the moon and, and all of a sudden it just goes out? Well, you know that there's no more light that's coming from the sun. Also, what if you look at the moon and the moon turns green one one night? Well, you know that the light that's coming from the sun is green. So the moon tells us two things. The moon tells us that the sun exists, and it tells us what quality of light the sun gives. Did you know that the moon is actually a symbol of Jesus? In Psalms, uh, the moon is called the faithful witness. And in Revelation 1, Jesus is called the faithful witness. Both of them are the same thing, faithful witness. So in the same way that you cannot look at the sun... But you can look at the moon to learn about the sun. In the same way, you can't dwell in the presence of the Father. You can't look upon the Father. But you can look at Jesus, his son, and you can learn about the Father. So when Jesus came to earth, he came to a nighttime, a a darkened world, and he was the light of the world, just like the moon. God put him there so that we could learn about the Father, the source of light. Not only could we see that the Father existed, but we could see that the Father, what character he was of, you know, in the same way that you can look at the moon's light and you can see, well, the sun still obviously exists because I see the light and I know that the light is white because it's emitting, you know, a white light on earth, right? So Jesus and the moon are a symbol of each other. So the world turned its back on God and it plunged us into darkness. But remember, what does it mean to, to, to understand, to, to, to have light or darkness? It means that you understand God's character or not. After Adam and Eve sinned, they lost sight of God's character. We see that displayed here in this verse, verse 8. What happened when God came to visit them in the garden? They were running away and hiding. Now they had fear of God. They lost sight of God's character. And because we are all Adam and Eve's children, all of us suffer with that same natural tendency. Just like animals run away from us in the wild, we tend to naturally misunderstand God. We fear Him. We think He's too harsh or critical or whatever. Or we have the opposite problem. We think that God is overly merciful, and he'll just let anything slide. We tend to have a problem on either side of that, of that pendulum. We fall into one side of the ditch or another, but God is a perfect blend of justice and mercy. A perfect blend. So, God didn't leave Adam in even darkness. What did he do? Well, we read about that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. Um, let's go in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 22 to 24, and we'll see what God did. God did not leave Adam and Eve in darkness. Praise God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden after they sinned, after they plunged the world into darkness. And what did God do? What did he place outside? Cherubims, which are angels, and a what? A flaming sword a flaming sword hmm look at this i'm going to share with you a quote about that flaming sword from the adventist bible commentary it says right here the phrase the flaming sword is a rather inexact translation of the hebrew which reads literally a glittering of the sword there was no literal sword guarding the gate of paradise there was rather what appeared to be the scintillating reflection of light from a sword turned every way with great rapidity flashing shafts of light radiating from an intensely brilliant center this radiant living light was none other than the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of the divine presence. So when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God set up what? Two cherubim and the Shekinah glory? Well, where do we see that? Where do you see the Shekinah glory in between two angels? In the, in the most holy place of the sanctuary. So as soon as there was sin, there was a sanctuary. Sanctuary. As soon as there was sin, God established the light or the lamp on earth. Did you know that the first sanctuary was not actually during the time of Moses? The first sanctuary was established right there at the Garden of Eden. Ellen White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets that the first worshipers would come and worship before that gate. So here you have the Shekinah glory, you have the two angels, and you have the altar of sacrifice. Why is it that Cain and Abel, when they were sacrificing, that God spoke directly to Cain? Well, they weren't just worshiping anywhere. They were worshiping right there in front of the Shekinah glory. And when the worshipers would come and offer their sacrifices, they could see that Garden of Eden. They could see and remember where the law was broken. They could remember the law as well. So you have have in miniature the nucleus of the sanctuary established right there out of the Garden of Eden. And God was the one who provided those first skins for them. So you have a lot of symbolism there. So check this out. Adam and Eve plunged us all into darkness. They lost sight of God's character. God established a lamp called the Shekinah glory inside of the sanctuary so that we could relearn about his character and we could reapproach unto the light. Amen. Now, Adam and Eve understood the sacrificial systems. They understood a lot of truths about the sanctuary. They passed that on. The next person that we see uh, with the... um, There we go, it's the diagram of the sanctuary again. The next next person that we see who is um, offering sacrifice is Noah. And Noah is offering the sacrifice after the flood came. And... um, It was the very first act of Noah, actually, to offer that sacrifice. He didn't set up a tent, the Bible doesn't say. It says he came out, animals were released, and they offered sacrifice. So not far away from that altar of sacrifice, in the background, was the ark. What was behind the altar of sacrifice? The ark. Are you following where I'm going with this? There was the ark there, and the ark was the thing that held of the life it's where the source of the source of life it was where life came from to repopulate the world and that was the first time that God established the rainbow because we're told that there was no rain before that point so now that there was rain God established the rainbow in the sky you know, a rainbow is something that's depicted as being around God's throne right so you've got this the symbolism again here you've got you've got some of the elements of the sanctuary reestablished again after the world was destroyed and it had to be repopulated by Noah and his family so God continually was trying to have the sanctuary and the light that was in the sanctuary, in other words, his character, established on this earth. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Adam and Eve, figuratively speaking, let's imagine that they lived in the sanctuary. Before they sinned, where did they live position-wise? Where were they in in this flow? Before they sinned. They were in the most holy place, because Adam and Eve were able to dwell in the presence of God, right? So they were able to be in the presence of the Shekinah glory. They were over here. They could see God's character pretty clear, because when you're close to a light, you see it pretty brightly, don't you? But what happened? Where did they move to after they sinned? They moved out beyond the altar sacrifice. Why is that? It's because before man could approach to God again, he had to go through the sacrifice. Before you can, you you know, nobody comes to the Father except by me. You have to cover yourself with the blood of the Lamb before you can begin to approach unto God. So Adam and Eve were, were moved, figuratively speaking, far out away from that light, that Shekinah glory, the Lamb. They lost sight of the knowledge of God because what happens when you get further away from a light source? It gets darker and darker and darker and darker. Interestingly, where is another light source in the sanctuary? It was right there at the altar of sacrifice because there was a flame that destroyed the body of that, that victim. Likewise, we can see a picture of God's character at the cross. There's a flame there. There's a light source at the cross about God's character, right? And then when we see that, of course, it draws us further into a walk towards God. Now, um, Noah transferred this knowledge of the sacrificial system to his, his uh, children after him until we get to Abraham. Abraham, when he would move around the land of Canaan, he would offer sacrifices. He obviously knew about uh, the sacrificial system. He knew about the light. He understood God's character uh, uh, to a greater extent than uh, apparently anybody else on earth. He taught it to, Abraham taught it to Isaac. Isaac taught it to Jacob. Jacob taught it to his 12 sons. They all went into the land of Goshen. So here we have a small nation that grew into a large one in the land of Goshen, that knew about the character of God. They had the light. They knew about the sacrificial system. They knew many things that we know potentially about the sanctuary. But during the course of their slavery in Egypt, they lost more and more sight of that and those truths. But just as the fire or the light was about to be extinguished on earth, as the Israelites were about to lose all their knowledge of God and what he had given them, God sent a deliverer called Moses, and Moses brought them out to serve God. Now, what's interesting is that Moses actually, did you know that God actually led the Israelite nation through a sanctuary experience? What was the last plague in, the, in, in Egypt? It was the death of the, the, death of the firstborn, right? So uh, back on the screen here, if we could put that back up on, on the screen, the death of the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn, and he died on the cross. After the death of the firstborn, they were freed, and they came over to what's called the Red Sea. At the Red Sea, they came to the Red Sea as slaves, escaping from, from slavery. After they went through the waters of the Red Sea, they were free from their old life of slavery. In fact, the enemy was even killed. There was no chance they could even go back into slavery, even if they wanted to. So they, they died to their old slave, life of slavery, and they resurrected to a new life through the Red Sea. The Red Sea, the blood of Christ, right? So there's some, there's some interesting symbolism here. Now, I'm not going to put too much weight on it, You know, let's not build a theological framework off of all these things. But you have to admit, these things are not coincidental. They're built into the Word of God. Now, what happened after they went through the Red Sea? They got hungry. and God fed them manna. You remember uh, um, when uh, the Amalekites came out and started fighting them in the wilderness? They were only able to win against the Amalekites as long as Moses' hands were raised. But when they lowered, the Israelites started losing. Why did God put that story in the Bible? It's to show Christ's intercession for us. And how when he's interceding for us, we have victory. But when he's not, we have no hope, right? So you have Christ's um, intercession there. Now, eventually they were brought to the land, uh, or to Mount Sinai, when where they were given the Ten Commandments. And they were given the instructions for the entire sanctuary and building of it. So God brought the Israelites, as a nation even, through many of the elements of the sanctuary service. Why? It's because he was giving them back the light. Then he gave them the sanctuary service. He put his Shekinah glory inside of the sanctuary. Why? Because he wanted to give the Israelites back that lamp that had been given to Adam and Eve and transferred all the way down to them. They were now to be the people to possess the light of God's character and to spread it in the darkness of the world. So God took Israel and he strategically placed them in the land of Canaan. Well, why did he do that? Because whoever lived in the land of Canaan had the most world influence because all the major trade routes of the then known world went through the land of Canaan. And whoever was positioned there had worldwide influence. Satan knew that too. That's why he put his seven most abominable nations in there. That's why in Deuteronomy 20, when you see God, God tells the Israelites, when you go into the land of Canaan, there are seven specific nations that I want you to destroy everything that breathes. All the other nations, treat them differently, but these seven utterly destroy. The reason why is because those seven nations there in the land of Canaan had been pushed down morally by, by Satan to the point where they were bringing the entire morality of the world down, similar to Hollywood. You know, Hollywood is positioned in California, which is the most populous state, in the most influential uh, country in the world, the United States, so it has global influence. And is it bringing the world up or down morally? No, it's bringing it down. In fact, there are studies that show that even though Hollywood makes more money by making PG-13 rated movies, they still make more R-rated movies. So if they were in it for the money, they'd be making PG-13 rated rated movies. But they make R-rated movies because there's an agenda behind it. Satan controls that institution. It's to bring the world down. So God placed Israel in the land of Canaan because he wanted them to be in a position of worldwide influence. Why? Not because the Israelites were so amazing, but because he wanted the world to have a knowledge of the sanctuary. He wanted the world to have a knowledge of the light. He wanted a world to have the knowledge of his character. So he planted Israel in the land of Canaan. Now, did Israel do very well at uh, representing God? Unfortunately not. Uh, They kept on having problems to the point where they got destroyed by the Babylonians. But then the sanctuary got reestablished afterwards. And that sanctuary existed until Jesus came on the scene. Jesus then came as the light of the world himself. Jesus himself was a walking, talking, living sanctuary. (laughs) And he came to his own, and his own received him not. The darkness did not comprehend the light, even though the light shone in it. Jesus came to the sanctuary, to his own abode, and it rejected him. His people and the leaders rejected him, to the point where Jesus said, See, now your house is left unto you desolate. That's what we call the abomination of desolation, when the house is left desolate. Jesus, who is the rightful king, coming to his house, and he's rejected, so he leaves because he won't force himself on his people. And They they accepted Barabbas, they accepted Caesar instead of him. They rejected their king. The king on the cross, Jesus, the king of the the Jews, posted on the sign above his head, "His, his blood be on us and on our children. Right? Jesus was rejected. The light was rejected by the light bearers. And Jesus died in darkness. Not darkness as thick as the hearts of what was surrounding the hearts of his people, though. Now, Jesus understood the sanctuary. He understood God's character, didn't he? Amen. Jesus passed on that knowledge of God's character. In other words, he passed on the light to his church. Remember on the day of Pentecost, when the church was empowered to go and preach the gospel and to begin spreading the light in a powerful way? What came down on top of their heads? Tongue of fire. The light was given to his people when they were anointed as an early church to go and spread the gospel. Now, what's interesting is that um, the early church um, is symbolized, uh, oops, going back, is symbolized, uh, well, not just the early church, the church in general, but the early church, more specifically, we find the seven churches, right? And you've got the seven golden lampstands here. Um, what was it that made those lamps have the light on, on the lampstands? It was the, the, the oil, right? That That olive oil came from olives that were, what happens to the olives to get them to, express the oil. They have to be smashed, right? So here you have this beautiful symbolism. Jesus, who is symbolized by that olive, was also crushed. Under what? The weight of our sins. And when did that crushing experience begin? When did our sins get piled on top of him? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Olive Garden, right? (laughs) You ever eat at Olive Garden? You know, some of this stuff is not without coincidence. I was driving through Paso Robles the other day, and uh, there was a winery called Stonefire Walker. The name of the, 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 the winery is called Stonefire Walker. Do you know what that's a reference to? Who was it that walked on stones of fire? Lucifer. Read it in Isaiah 14. God says to Lucifer, You were on, you walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Stone Fire Walker. In other words, that winery is calling itself Lucifer. Pretty interesting, huh? Some of this stuff is pretty blatant, isn't it? I mean, what's the symbol on these little phones? A bitten apple? Hello? (laughs) Knowledge of good and evil? Can these little devices be for a knowledge of good for you? But can they be for a knowledge of evil? Uh Uh-huh. And now we get to carry them around everywhere, don't we? So we always have access to good, and we have always access to evil. You can't ever escape it, can you? Right? Let me tell you guys, Satan puts out those little clues there for us sometimes. Anyway, where was it going with this? Um, backing up. Um, the early church, yes. Okay, so you've so, so got this picture of Jesus being crushed under the weight of our sins. But because Jesus was crushed under our sins and died on the cross under the weight of our sins, being crushed, it allowed the Holy Spirit to be poured out. The, holy, the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. Oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit um, in Zechariah. And, and and the holy spirit was poured out on the day of pentecost in a very particular way upon the disciples and that came down in the form of a tongue of fire on the head of each one of them which is highly appropriate because they were the early church and they had the they were symbolized by the lampstand so they had tongues of fire come down so what is it that fuels the light and the mission of god's church from the beginning all the way down through the ages it's the holy spirit and how do we how do we even have that holy spirit is because Jesus died for us, he made it possible. So what is it that fuels our evangelism? Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus died so that your next door neighbor could be saved. Not just you, your next door neighbor too. Amen. So, the early church had this. They had the knowledge of God's character. They had the the light, they were the lamp. God passed the lamp from Jesus. To them, they were the lamp. The lamp was passed from Adam and Eve all the way down to Noah. Noah passed it to his sons. They passed it down to a- Abraham. Abraham passed it to Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel. Uh, and, and then it was passed all the way down until Jesus came. The sanctuary existed that whole time. The light existed. The knowledge of God's character, this battle between light and goodness, light and, light and darkness. And then it was passed to the early church. Now, do you think that Satan was just going to let that happen without a fight? Absolutely not. We see Satan attacked the church and brought darkness. Go to Daniel chapter 8. Go to Daniel chapter 8 with me. We're going to look at this very interesting, and it's going to get very relevant for us now as we wrap things up. Yes, I said wrap things up. Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. actually verse 10 this is speaking of the roman catholic church daniel chapter 8 verse 11 daniel chapter 8 verse 11 yea he magnified himself even to the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his what was cast down the place of his sanctuary was cast down um and going on to verse 12 a host was given him against the daily by reason of transgression and it cast down the truth to the ground. So here we have a picture of the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages, and it cast the sanctuary down to the ground, and it cast the truth down to the ground. Now, some of you might not